Well, so glad to be back with you this morning. We are in the book of Isaiah together. If you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 50 today. Isaiah chapter 50. Only 16 chapters to go, which means we've made significant progress, haven't we? Have you enjoyed this time through Isaiah? I certainly have myself. The book of Isaiah is so rich. And just behind the Psalms, as I've said to you before, the book of Isaiah is the second most referenced book in our New Testament. And so there is so much depth of insight into who God is, to who man is, to what God has accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. And so it's so exciting uh, for us to walk through the book of Isaiah together because of the richness found there. And today is no exception. So we're going to look at just three verses together this morning. Just three verses. That's Isaiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. So let's just read our text together. Isaiah 50, verses 1 through 3, and it says... Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. All right, and that's where we'll stop this morning. So if you remember with us where we've been coming from in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 42, we, we started this, uh, there was the first servant song where Jesus Christ is depicted as the faithful servant. And always in contrast, we have uh, Israel who is the disobedient servant, right? It's very important that we understand that there's an intentional contrast between disobedient servant Israel and obedient servant to come, the faithful Israel, who is Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is coming, and uh, uh, Isaiah is really uh, focusing in on that in these uh, few chapters, 10 chapters. Uh, 42 through 52 is where we find all four servant songs. And so what we have in chapter 50, verses 1 through 3, is really kind of a preface to the uh, next servant song. So really verses 1 through 11, where we could see it maybe as verses 4 through 11 as the next servant song. So verses 1 through 3 is preparing us for what God is about to tell us about this righteous servant, this faithful servant. And in this, we always see why we might need a faithful servant. Why do we need this faithful servant? Why, why is Isaiah so focused on telling us about the disobedience of Israel and the faithfulness of the servant to come. Why is that the focus? Why is that why, what God wants to explain to us in his word? Why is that the emphasis? I hope maybe 
this morning by answering this question. I hope to see it clearly. The question is, why was there no one? That's what it says in the text. Why was there no man? Why was there no single individual when I called? Why did no one come when I called? Why did no one hear me when I spoke? Why? Why? Why was there no one? That's the question. We're going to answer that today uh, in the text because I believe that is the whole point. Okay, so let's look. Uh, Well, first, uh, this is connected to chapter 49 in this way. Remember chapter 49, verse 14? The whole emphasis last week in the text was, has God forsaken Zion? I'm about to ask you to give me an answer, so prepare yourselves, okay? I catch you off guard by this sometimes, and so then we have to do it twice. Let's just do it once. I'm going to ask you for an answer, and the answer is either yes or it's no. Are you, are you ready? You don't know. Okay, so I promise that at least if you were here last week, you know the answer to this question, okay? So I'm going to ask you the question. I want you to respond. There's only two possible, so even if you guessed, you're, you're, you might get it. Has the Lord forsaken Zion? No. Oh, excellent. If you took that from last week, fantastic news, because what that tells us is God has remained faithful in the midst of an unfaithful people, right? That's important. So chapter 49, verse 14 says, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Is that true? No. But it felt like it. It felt like it. Okay, so then just look at verse 21, because this is uh, particularly um, it, 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 a good connection between what we find in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 50. So uh, chapter 49, verse 21 says, uh, Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? We talked about this last week. I was bereaved and barren. And look, listen to these next two. Uh, exiled and put away. Do you see those in the text? Of course, that's the ESV's rendering. If you have a different translation, uh, it makes something different, but similar. Uh, I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. I was sent away. Do you see it? I was sent away. And I felt forsaken when I was sent away. So chapter 50, verse 1, introduces that idea back when it says, well, where's your mother's certificate of divorce? Show it to me. Uh, Because I would have to have that to send her away. So where is it? And then then he says, or uh, of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So what Israel is saying is, Lord, you have not been faithful to us. You have forsaken us because we are exiled and we have obviously been sent away. And you did it. You sent us away. What Israel is saying here, Israel represented by the city of Zion as a whole, right? You should understand that. So the people are saying, You sent us away. You exiled us. You have caused this to happen. What's your problem? That's really what's the point. Why have you done this to us? Are you a God who forsakes his people? Are you a God who is not faithful to his promises? Why have you done this to us, God? And so God replies. And he says, well, if you can show me the divorce certificate, I'll admit that I'm the one that caused this. Or, or if, if you can find the creditor that I owed money that I couldn't pay, 
um, then I'll admit that this was my fault. The whole idea here is about blame. Who is to blame for the exile and the sending away of Israel? That's the whole point. Who is to blame? Whose fault was this? Israel is saying, well, it's God's fault. He initiated it. He wanted a divorce because he didn't love us anymore. We just drifted apart, you know? We didn't have the same interests anymore. And uh, God decided that it was best to find someone else. So he divorced us and sent us away. And God said, oh, really? Is that what happened? Show me. And they said, well, maybe you owed some other power uh, money. And so you had to sell us because that's all you could do, right? It's important to understand probably that at this time, if you owed someone money, that you and your family would be sold into slavery to pay off your debts. Probably important to know that. So uh, is that what happened? Did God owe somebody a bunch of money? Had to be a lot of money, right? God owed somebody a lot of money, and the best he could do is like, well, I don't have the money, but here, take all my kids. Is that enough? Is that what happened? And so God says, Obviously, the, the intended rhetorical answer there is, well, that obviously that can't be the case. So God gives us a straightforward answer about why all this took place. Behold, or uh, you, might, you might say, look, I'm going to give you the answer. That's what behold is kind of means here. Look, let me tell you. For your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions your mother was sent away. You want to know why this separation happened? You want to know why you're in exile? You want to know why all this is coming on you? You better not blame me. I'm not the problem. It's you. You are the problem. It is for your sins. It is for your transgressions that we are separated. I am not the problem. It is not my fault. Don't blame me for sin and for suffering. And when we say it in those terms, all of a sudden, we realize that we're kind of just like Israel in this sense, where when uh, times of suffering come and, and hurts and pains and sin and sorrow and griefs, we may be tempted to say something like, whether you say it out loud, it, that doesn't matter. You say it in your heart. Why has God forsaken me? Why has God brought this suffering on me? Does he not love me anymore? Has he sent me away? Are our interests divided? Is he looking for someone else? Why has God brought this upon me? I thought he loved me. Right? I thought I had the love of God. I, I, I thought we had this agreement where God was going to love me and he was never going to leave me or forsake me. Right? Isn't that what we know? But yet... My circumstances and the way I feel and what's going on in my life makes me feel forsaken. It makes me suffer. It makes me hurt. And it makes me feel like I've been abandoned by God. Has anyone ever felt that feeling? You ever felt abandoned by God? Where is God? So what does God say is happening here? Well, you need to understand that this was not me. You were sold for your own transgressions. In another place, Isaiah will say it this way. Of course, when Isaiah said it, who else said it? You heard the answer whispered. It was, when Isaiah said it in the book of Isaiah, 
God said it, right? So even though I say Isaiah says, who said it when Isaiah said it? God said it. So it's very important that although Isaiah was used by God, it, it is the word of God. So later on, Isaiah will say, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 59. Now, chapter 59 is not too far away from chapter 50, right? In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Chapter 50 says that same thing. So it's same, same context, same theological context. His ear is not dull, that it cannot hear. That's not what God's like. Now, you're like that, and I'm like that, but that's not how God is. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So what's the problem? Is God the problem? Is God ever the problem? However, does our heart have a tendency at times to want to blame God for circumstances? Let's, it's okay to admit it. You know, it's, this is a safe space, okay? This is a safe space. We... There are sin tendencies in our life. That's true. There are sin tendencies. And part of our sin tendencies as sinful creatures is that we tend to want to blame God for the things that come upon our lives that we don't like. God is correcting that in these words. Who is to blame then for suffering that comes upon us? Was this a time of great intense suffering for the people of Israel? As a total, the whole house of Israel, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, everybody, was this a time of intense suffering for those people? They remember they had just the northern kingdom, 722, just been led away by the Assyrian army. The Assyrians, not good people, very, very bad people, but God used them to carry them away uh, into exile and to destroy them, and that was not good. That was intense suffering. Lots of people died. So, in a similar way, the southern kingdom is now being invaded by the Babylonians, and lots of people are going to die and suffer. Husbands are going to watch wives murdered or worse. Parents are going to watch their children led away, killed. You realize that this is what's coming on these people. Homes destroyed, led away, separated from their families, killed themselves, tortured. Yes, all of that is coming. Is that a time of intense suffering? And so since God said that is coming, they're, well, why are you doing that thing, God? I thought we were your loved ones, aren't we? Aren't we your chosen people for your own possession? You love us. You told us that you love us, but this is happening to us, so clearly you don't. So what happened? Did you divorce us or did you sell us because you owed somebody? God says, no, you got it all wrong. You misunderstand why this is coming upon you. It's coming upon you because of you. That's why it's coming upon you. So interesting. Um, I want to read just a couple of verses out of Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah 11, verses 9 through 11. Jeremiah 11, verses 9 through 11. And the reason I want to read out of Jeremiah is because he, he talks a little bit about the relationship between God and, and Israel, and uh, in, in particular Judah, because that's who we're concerned with. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, which was located out of the capital city of Jerusalem, which was about to be invaded. Okay? So Jeremiah is a prophet more near to the time when that actually occurred. Isaiah is about 100 years removed from it, which is strange, I, right? 
because uh, there's a lot of details here, but you know, God can do that. That's okay. And so there's a lot of details about it, but it's not going to happen for another hundred years. But Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of God when it's actually taking place. And so Jeremiah has something to say about this relationship. And what he says is, again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They've turned their back to their iniquities, to their forefathers, and they refuse to hear my words. They have, gone after, they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Who broke it? Did God break it? Did God initiate this? Was he to blame? No, he wasn't to blame. The people broke it. They've done this. And so then it says, therefore. Therefore is a big key word when you're reading in your scriptures, right? So therefore... Because the people did this, therefore, thus says the Lord, I'm bringing disaster upon them, and they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Does that sound like suffering to you? God is not to be blamed for the presence of sin, and he is not in the wrong when he punishes sin. I'm going to say that again because that is a concept here that we have to take with us. God is not to be blamed for the presence of sin. Also, God is not in the wrong when he punishes sin. So here's an interesting thought then that we have to talk about because in this world that we live in, this issue comes up probably by other names and concepts, but it's something that we have to be prepared for, prepared to give an answer to this. And as the scriptures tell us, we need to be ready to destroy arguments. We need to always be prepared to give a hope for the, uh, uh, give a defense for the hope that is in us, right? And so we need to be aware of some of the things that are being said right now in our particular cultural environment that we might be ready for particular attacks that come upon the scriptures and the Christian faith. Would you agree with that? I think that we should. And I think there is something very significant in these three verses that if properly understood, we have all this ammunition to take with us into the world that's attempting to destroy the reality of God. And the reality is this, is that although God exists and he is perfectly sovereign, he is not the author of sin and suffering, yet sin and suffering exist. So the argument kind of goes like this. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then suffering should not exist. Suffering does exist. Evil does exist. Therefore, God does not exist. That's, that's the argument. And of course, it's said in many numerous ways of that same type of argument. But the idea is that if God truly is loving, would do, is God love? Absolutely. Is God all-powerful, sovereign? Yes. Is he sovereign over all things or just certain things? All things. Evil exists, correct? Is he sovereign over that? Or is somebody else in charge of evil? Is that somebody else's category? God is sovereign over the good things, the love and the encouragement and the pleasing things, right? 
God is sovereign over all of that, and he only likes good stuff to happen. But when bad stuff happens that we call bad, right? God has nothing to do with that. He's only sovereign over the good stuff. Is that what the book of Isaiah has taught us? Only if you have blind eyes and deaf ears have you heard that message. Right? Because our God is perfectly sovereign over all things. So we have to ask the question, however, if evil does exist, which it does, we've all admitted to that, yeah? Evil does exist and God is perfectly sovereign, then we have kind of an issue that we need to resolve because if God is perfectly sovereign, all-powerful, um, over all things, including evil, could he stop evil if he wanted? So we have two things happening here. Either God is unable to stop sin and suffering, or he is unwilling. Right? There is no other option. Either God, if he is truly sovereign, all-powerful, and we say he's all-loving. Is he all-loving? Yeah, he actually he is. If all of that is true, then what do you do with evil and suffering, which we know exists by personal experience, right? Is God not able to stop it when suffering comes upon us? Is he, can he stop it? If God wanted to stop it, could he? Yes. So then he has made a willing choice to not stop it. Is that correct? That's hard to answer that way, though, isn't it? And at times, if we're not careful, we can skip around such realities so as to say God is not responsible for suffering. He's only responsible for the good stuff. Is that true? That would be not an omnipotent God. That would be a God that doesn't have power. That would be a God that wastes things that happen, right? Does God waste suffering? If we believe that God is not sovereign over suffering, then that suffering is for no reason. Do you put that together? God has no plan for it. He's not in charge of it. It just happens and he can't do anything about it. If that is true, then that suffering was for nothing. Either that or God is trying to do his best at keeping tally of all the suffering and evil that happens in the world. And he's like, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to make something good come out of that suffering that caught me off guard. You're suffering right now? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, let's figure out what you're suffering and let's figure out how to make something good come of that. I'm trying my best. I don't know yet, uh, but I'm doing everything I can here. I'm sorry. Is that the kind of God we have? Is that the kind of God that is depicted in the scriptures? Or do we have a God who says, I know. Do you think that escaped my attention? Do you think that escaped my hand? Do you think that I have no purpose for that? I know. But thank you for coming to me because I care for you and I love you. What I want is a faithful heart from you in the midst of your suffering. That's what I want. And you know what? Suffering many times is an incredible blessing in our lives because it breaks us and it brings us to where we need to be. 
It gives us that heart of faith that we need to have, and otherwise we would not have it. God is faithful, always, and he is perfectly sovereign, always. There is never a time when God is not sovereign over everything. If it were true, then there are things existing in this world, in this universe, that God has no power over. That would be a scary world to live in. We do not live in a world like that, however. We live in a world where there is nothing running rogue, okay? There is nothing escaping the sovereign power of God. That is a comfort to us. You know why? Because God is my father. I'm his child. He owns everything and he has power over everything. So what can happen to me? What is there that can harm me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, bring it back to Israel's situation. Is that the way they were thinking of this? No. No, they, they didn't have quite, uh, quite the theology developed that they should, right? And why is that? Why did they not have quite the theology they should? Because did they have Isaiah 50 verses 1 through 3? They were the original audience to whom Isaiah was writing, right? Now, even though they may not have had it in a written format such as this, they had it. And if they heard it, why didn't they hear it? And if they saw it, why didn't they see it? You already know the answer. Isaiah 6 tells us why. Remember? Isaiah said, I'm going to go. I'll go for you. What do you want me to say to him? I'm so excited. I want you to say, keep on hearing, but don't hear. Keep on seeing, but don't see. That's what I want you to say. Why couldn't they see? Why was there no one when he called to them? Because they didn't hear him. And they didn't see him. Why? Why? Because of their sin. That's why. So who's to blame for their current circumstances? themselves. Does that mean that God had nothing to do with it? Does that mean God didn't plan it? Does that mean God has no purpose behind it? I hope you don't think that. God has an intention here, doesn't he? God has an intention. How does the rest of the Bible, just generally speaking, how does the rest of the Bible speak about this relationship to God's sovereignty and the existence of evil? And I'm just going to reference a couple of situations here so that we know We've talked about this before, and, but in a different capacity. And so I just want to say it from this angle because we've talked about this idea of concurrence before and uh, how God's sovereignty exists, uh, uh, but yet, uh, well, let, let, me just, let me just read what I'm going to read here and we'll let the scriptures speak for themselves. Isaiah 50, 20. You know this, but think about it in terms of we've been discussing this morning. Isaiah, or Genesis 50, 20. Did I say Isaiah the first time? Not what I meant. Genesis 50, 20. You know this story, and you know the verse I'm about to read. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God 
meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So there was evil in the situation, right? Was God sovereign over it? Did God have a plan for it? Did God use that evil intentionally to bring about his good purposes? Yes. Was God to blame for that evil? That's the tricky part, isn't it? The answer, of course, is no. Is God ever to blame for evil? That's what Isaiah 50, 1 through 3 is telling us. Whose fault is this? Whose blame is this? Yours. Yours. You are to blame. Sin is to blame. Is God the author of sin? Is he the author of evil? No. But does God sovereignly use evil to bring about his purposes. You planned this for evil against me, and it was evil, and it was sinful. But thank God that we have a God who is sovereign over evil, because he intended this for good. Interesting. Another situation, well, I I guess I just have a verse here of commentary. Uh, Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light and I create darkness, I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Interesting. When we see calamity, I'm going to start using that more in my vocabulary. I like that word. What a calamity we find ourselves in. When we have situations that arise, though, and we see it as a calamity, right? A situation that's out of control to us. God creates that. Did you know that? Now, Should evil and sin be involved, did God do the evil or the sin? No, never. Uh, I'll read another one. By the way, calamity is the same word used in Genesis 50, 20 for evil. Uh, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Isaiah 45, 7, the word calamity is that exact same Hebrew word. So the KJV, for example, says, I make well-being and I create evil. It's interesting. Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Of course, the answer to that is a trumpet, well, I guess you have to know what that means. Blow a trumpet, it's like, oh, we're having a party. Not, not that kind of trumpet. Um, when a trumpet is blown, it means the enemy is coming, right? Okay, so a trumpet is blown. Are the people afraid? Yes. So if the answer to that is yes, the answer to the next question is also yes. That's how the parallelism works. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? It's to the affirmative, meaning the Lord has done it, right? It's what both mean. So does disaster come into a city unless the Lord has done it? That's how it works. So we think, well, when things happen, has the Lord done it? Well, if there is evil involved, the Lord is not to blame for the evil. However, nothing escapes his sovereign hand and his purposes. Another one. I only have two more. There's a climax here in just a second, so just bear with me, okay? Isaiah 10, we already know this one. I use this one a lot because it works so well. We see it plain as day, what happened here. In Isaiah 10, verses 5 and 6, It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hand is my fury. Woe to Assyria. That means you did something bad. 
But then it says, they are the rod of my anger. The staff in their hand that's coming upon you, that's going to hurt you and kill you, that's my anger. What? It's difficult to comprehend a little bit. But what it's saying is that God is sovereign over this, even though God is not to blame for the evil that's coming upon them. Okay, I'll just use this as the last one because someone changed the clock and time has gone by (laughs) fast, okay? I know your schemes. All right, so uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Just listen to what it says and keep in mind what we've been talking about. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 says, uh, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, what had taken place? Jesus was born, the people rejected him, they hated him, they tortured him and murdered him. Does that sound like good stuff? But who is it that orchestrated that plan? Whose hand predestined those things to take place? God's. So you're telling me that God is sovereign over that suffering as well? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Actually, I'm not really saying any. I'm just telling you what the scriptures have to say about this concept. The people of Israel at this time didn't understand how this could be happening to them if they were truly God's people. And so they placed blame on God. What have you done here, God? God turns it around and says, listen, I do have a plan for this. Did God have a plan for the Babylonian captivity? And that was definitely God's plan, right? That he would lead his people into Babylonian captivity? Definitely his plan, right? So was it also his plan that the people would come and plunder and kill and murder them? Well, yes. You have to say yes. You can't have it both ways. Is this hard to, well, yes, all is true, okay? God is perfectly loving. God is sinless. God is never the author of evil. That is true. But do you know that God is also sovereign over evil and suffering? And he is never to blame when he punishes sin. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Well, We've talked about that. Why was there no one? We know the answer to that. I'll have to be honest with you. I've only glanced at my notes this morning, and so I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. Uh, Time has just slipped away. Always seems to do that somehow. But I'd like to take you just to one place, maybe as we draw some things together, but I don't want to do so without mentioning why this second part is here in verses 2 and 3. We're about to go to, well, I'm not going to tell you because you get distracted. We're, we're in chapter 50, verse 2, and it says, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was no one to answer. And then he says, so is my hand so short that it can't redeem you? Or is, do I have not the power to deliver? Because if you thought I did, if you thought I could save you, wouldn't you come to me when I called? W- wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you come to me? If you thought I could save you and I called to you, wouldn't you come to me? Okay, so then do you think that I'm not powerful enough or you think my hand, by the way, if I go out to like, you know, save them and it's like, oh, I just, I can't reach you. Oh, my, my arms. I just realized recently, by the way, did you know I have short arms? <laughs> Maybe you already knew that. I'm just realizing that. 
I always thought, like my shirts always fit. I mean, look at this. My shirts always fit like this. Well, this one's different. Okay, my, there you go. There it goes. My shirts always fit like this. And I just thought that's the way it was. And Amanda said, I thought you knew. I mean, you had short arms. You didn't know that? I said, no. I had no idea that I had short arms. I just, um, God doesn't have short arms. That's the whole point. Don't get distracted. God can do what he wants to do, okay? He can save. So when he calls, we should listen. There's no one else who can save. No one else. And when he does something, he's going to do it. He's not going to mess up, and he's not going to be unfaithful. This is a good God that we serve. This is a good, loving, faithful, powerful God that we serve. And so it says, um, listen to what I've done in the past. I've, I've rebuked the, uh, uh, behold my rebuke. I dry up the sea and I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and thirst. And I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Why is all that there? Because God is saying, he's, he's kind of going back to the Exodus event clearly here when he's saying, I dry up the sea. Oh, yeah, that was God, wasn't it? And he dried it up. And he, he also dried up the Jordan River when the people crossed over into the promised land, right? So was God faithful? Did God deliver? Then why do you think that I can't deliver? When did, he, when did this blackness happen? That was also in the Exodus event, right? That was when they were in uh, Egypt and the blackness came over all the land for three days. Blackness for three days, except for the people of Israel, they had light the whole time. That's amazing. But God is saying, you remember that I did all that? Do you know the power I have even over nature itself? They all bow to me. I am Lord of it all, all of it. There is nothing outside of my power, so why don't you come to me when I call? Why is there no man when I speak? And it's amazing that verse four begins the servant song because there is that man who will listen. There is that man who is faithful. There is that one who believes. There is that one who we need. That is Christ. There he is. It creates in us this desire and this anticipation for one who will listen. We want someone to listen to God. We want someone to bow down to him. We want someone to be faithful. Who's that gonna be? Christ Jesus. That is him. But I told you I'm gonna take you somewhere to, to draw these together and we'll... And here, probably in Romans chapter 3. And what Romans chapter 3 does is it takes what we've just learned about the people of Israel and it makes a connection to the gospel and how we're to understand what God was doing with these ancient people. What was God doing with these ancient people and why were they faithless? Why were they complainers? Why did so much happen to them? And of what significance or consequence is that to us? Because maybe, maybe if you're not used to going in, in such depth into what the scriptures have to say, particularly in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets of the Old Testament, you might be thinking, well, of what significance is this to me today? And I would argue with you, it is of every significance. If you do not take these grand concepts of who God is and how he works with humanity, we're going to not have a right understanding of who God is. And things are going to happen to us in life, and we're going to wonder, was God in that? And you say, no, no, God wasn't in that. God is in everything. 
do you really think things happen by chance and God is just in heaven trying to do his best? That's not how it works. That is not the God we serve. That is not the God that saved us. Anyway, let's just let Paul tell us. Romans 3, chapter, yeah, chapter 3, verse 1, okay? So there's this question which is incredibly helpful for us to even ask. It. So Paul says, so of what advantage has the Jew? Right? I mean, can we actually ask that question today? I mean, so we're looking back on this situation and we're, those are God's people. So what, what advantage then has the Jew? Or of what value is their incircumcision that is the sign of their covenant with God? Of, of what value is it? Well, he says much in every way. Uh, to begin with, the Jews, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's saying they're, they're privileged, right? There's a privilege there because, well, God spoke to them. However, did they take advantage of God speaking to them? Keep talking to them and they're not going to listen. Their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf. They didn't take advantage of their situation, did they? So, okay, so then Paul says, so what if some of them were unfaithful? Does Paul know the Old Testament? Does Paul know the book of Isaiah? Does he know Israel's history? So he's saying, so uh, let's just think here for a second. What if God's people were not faithful? What does that mean? And then he says, does their faithlessness, this is so important, this is a big question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Isn't that kind of an incredible question to ask though? That if the people are unfaithful to whom he made a covenant, does that make God unfaithful? Answer? No. That, Paul says that pretty emphatically, doesn't it? What does he say next? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But here's the thing. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I, I want you to see what has just been said, and I, I realize that in order to fully explain what we have going on here, we'll probably be here about another 45 minutes. So I want to leave you with something, however. It's, it's so important. I, you know, I, I, even made, I even made less notes today. How did this happen? I, I don't know. It's a mystery. Uh, but uh, anyway, what, what, what I'd like to leave you here with, because we've talked about this a lot, and so we'll make this just kind of our emphasis from the text here, is what is being said is that the people are blaming God for their sin and suffering and their separation from God. God has turned it around and said, no, I'm not to blame. You are to blame. Your sin is to blame. But at the same time, I have a plan for everything that is coming upon you. I have a plan for everything that is coming upon you and nothing escapes my plans. That means that every single thing that you experience in your life, and I mean everything, has a purpose. And though it's commonly quoted, I think commonly misunderstood as well, and maybe I'll just read it, is that Romans, uh, we'll, we'll just end here. I know. Sherry, I'm just, I'm just, I just keep going on. Just new thoughts keep coming into my head here, right? Um, whoops. So uh, in Romans chapter 8, Romans eight twenty eight is very often quoted. 
uh, Romans 8.29 should be quoted with it. And Romans 8.28 says, uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And is it true? Do you know that all things work together? What, what things? All. all things. Just the good stuff? Or does the suffering part actually work together for us as well? Is that true? Or is it not true? It's definitely true. But look at verse 29 because it tells us the purpose or the end result. Because I, I hear many people say, well, I know it had some good. We not, might not see it in our lifetime, but we just trust that God had good purposes behind it. Um, I get the sentiment there, but actually I can tell you the end goal of, of I, I, the text tells us what kind of good is going to come out of everything. It actually says, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to make those you know, statements that don't actually have any meaning. It says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the reason and the, the result that all things are working for the good, what is the good thing that it's working toward? You being conformed to Christ. Do you know that every single thing that's happening is working for your good and that good, that good thing is you being conformed to Christ. That's the good thing. What other good is there? I made some extra money this week. Praise the Lord. Uh, okay, I mean, you're going to go spend it on something. I mean, that's what you do. That's what we do. And then you probably spend it on, I mean, maybe not probably, but you may be spending on something that actually uh, God was not pleased with how you spent that money. So was that a blessing after all? No. Well, so what, what's the good then that came out of all this? Were you conformed to Christ through it? Did God break your heart through the midst of that thing? Did he make you depend on him through it? That's the point. Do you see it? That is the point. The point is that we might grow in conformity to Christ in all things, in all places, at all times. If you're doing anything in your life, if anything in your life has a point to it that does not result in you being conformed to Christ, that thing is an obstacle. That thing is not what it should be. That thing is preventing you from doing the good thing, even though to your eyes it may be the good thing, right? You may land a job or have a situation or a relationship or something, and you think, oh, that's the good thing. Thank you, Lord, for this great blessing. But it's leading you away from your Savior. So was that a blessing? Or you say, thank God, I just got this big check in the mail that I didn't expect, and it's a million dollars. Thank you, Lord, for this blessing. And I say, I don't, I don't think so. I, because now, of what good is God to me? I have everything I need. I don't depend on God anymore. I depend on that bank account. Thank you. What actually is a blessing? That's a good question. The blessing is a thing that leads you into conformity to Christ, whatever that is. Let's end on that note this morning. Let's pray.